Well, hello, folks. Welcome to The Sacred Speaks. My name is John Price. I'm your host. A lot of uh, cool things going on here. I'm eager to, uh, to bring you this episode because I feel like I got a new friend out of it. Dr. Miles Neal, thanks a lot for reaching out, for connecting, and for doing the work that you do. And this conversation was awesome. So I'll, I'll direct you to Dr. Miles Neal. His website is milesneal.com. Where is that thing? <laughs> when you, ah, yes. Milesneal.com, M-I-L-E-S-N-E-A-L-E.com. Uh, check it out. Lots of cool stuff on there. A pilgrimage, psychotherapy. He's got a podcast. He's got a YouTube channel, and it is very rich. So uh, go there. I watched a number of his videos, as I say in the interview, and I've referred a number of people to his videos, because one in particular with the Rubin was really helpful for me to understand uh, deeper aspects of Buddhism. Uh, Miles, thanks for the work you do. Thanks for this conversation. And I'm, I'm eager to continue to explore as you all, as the listeners will hear once you, or, or, or see, uh, once you follow through with listening to the whole thing. Hope you do. Uh, as far as updates are concerned, uh, I've got a cool uh, class coming up at Eslin. So go to Eslin, E-S-A-L-E-N dot org and check out the class. The link to the class will be below so you can check it out and not only uh, it register for the class, which will be February 28th through March 4th of this year, uh, just outside of Big Sur in California. And also check out their website. Lots of really great classes that they're offering, great workshops, and a good place to stay for the week, weekend, or day. So uh, thanks to Eslin. Appreciate you guys having me out, and I'm eager to teach that class. So uh, come out and join us. It'll be fun. Uh, as far as that's concerned, I've got an episode coming up in the next few weeks with Jeffrey Kripal, Dr. Jeffrey Kripal, who's a dear friend, and it will be his third time on the podcast. And uh, we'll be talking about Eslin. He's got this book, this one, Eslin. And, uh, and it's marvelous. I'm, I'm reading it now, I'm making my way through, and we're going to talk about the religion of no religion and the birth of the counterculture in the West. Uh, also, for Miles, let me, let me revisit that while I'm talking about books for a second. This is uh, Miles' book, Gradual Awakening. Uh, it's one of the better Buddhist books I've ever read, but it's deeper than that. It's, it's a, a kind of a guideline for how to create a practice and, um, and how to cultivate a, a deeper, richer inner life and spiritual path. So uh, again, Jeff Kripal, Dr. Miles Neal. I've also got a class coming up at the Young Center at younghouston.org, J-U-N-G-H-O-U-S-T-O-N.org. Check them out. I'm involved with the Young Center here in town, and it's a cool place to, uh, to educate yourself. And you can check out classes not only in person, you can also do it online. So explore that website. Links below. Uh, and, oh yeah, uh, the, the, the Sacred Speaks is brought to you by the Center for the Healing Arts and Sciences. It's a boutique integrative healing center that my wife and I created years ago. Uh, check us out at the center for HAS.com. And what else? There's one more thing. Uh, let's see. Uh, thankfully, there's editing that I can do on this podcast so I can leave long pauses like that. Uh, yes, the music. Uh, the music is Modern Nations. Check them out at modernnationsmusic.com. And other than that, as far as references or links, I think that's it for today. All I can say is that this conversation that uh, you're about to see or listen to was, uh, I, I just want to spend a moment with, <laughs> and just ooze gratitude, uh, because this process and project I've been doing for a little over four years, almost five years now, uh, 
has been one of the most spiritually and intellectually enriching endeavors of my entire life. And I am so thankful for this process. I, I, and I'm also thankful for you for being here. So thanks for any amount of hanging out that you do. Uh, be sure to like and subscribe to it so that it can grow. But I, it, there is a kind of uh, selfishness in this. I mean, I love this. I, I'm, I'm obsessed with uh, this, this path, my, my own spiritual and intellectual path. So I appreciate the ability to do this. Thank you for participating, for those that participate in the interviews, and thank you for participating. Your comments, your engagement, and your presence is greatly and deeply appreciated. Be sure to share the link to Eslin to any individual that you think might either enjoy this workshop or enjoy a stay at Eslin. There's so many great activities and workshops and classes. Uh, it would be hard not to find something that would hit you right where you need to be hit. For now, I think that's it. Uh, you can be looking forward to the Sacred Series coming out. I keep saying this, but it's a hell of a lot of work to get this thing done, and I'm trying to get it right. So uh, hopefully, uh, I think we set a date for February. We'll see if that goal line gets pushed down the field anymore. But for now, February 1st or about <laughs> in that vicinity. Um, uh, and for now, I, I just want to bring you this interview. So thank you, Dr. Neil, for your time, your energy, for your work. And thank you for being here. For now, we'll leave it there. Okay. Do you ever, I, I mean, sometimes I do that. When I used to play music, I would go and check my guitar on the stage and like, man, this isn't working. And the sound guy's like, plug your guitar in, dude. <laughs> you know, I'll, uh, yeah, okay. Yeah. Uh, shit. <laughs> yeah, I did that, you know. <laughs> um, okay. So, welcome, man. I'm so excited. As you and I were joking, like, we're, there's a there's a kind of amorous con connection that you and I have from afar, and so it's really nice to to meet you. Considering we've been emailing back and forth, and now I've been like reading your book, this one, and um, and also uh, listening and watching your work on YouTube, which is uh, we'll, we'll get into that. But I, I'm I'm really excited to uh, explore with you today, Miles. Likewise, John. Yeah, I've been, uh, I've been, I think we both probably spent a lot of time in a little bit of a rabbit hole or several of them. So it's always nice to come up for air and, and at the surface meet a like-minded fellow kindred inquirer or, or uh, you know, and, and a spiritual seeker. One thing I've really admired about your work in particular and why I contacted you was your interdisciplinary approach. I mean, we're, we're both therapists, but we're really trying to bridge a number of different worlds in, amidst the psychedelic revolution, uh, but spirituality is really important, trauma and psychology. So I think, you know, I've, I've very much really admired your platform and, and what you're doing um, with your podcast. And of course, the high caliber guests that you've invited. And I think they're in a spirit of collaboration. I think this is a we're we're really in a, a very monumental time. And it's it's going to take a lot of, you know, collaboration with colleagues to get clear about things. And so, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm very, very keen to do that with you. So thank you. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, it, it's you initiated, and I'm I'm grateful you did it. It's been exciting to get into your work. I just so we kind of uh, hang a couple of our flags out. You know, I, I I became basically obsessed with Buddhism when I was in my mid twenties, and just voraciously read. I mean, I I I read anything I possibly could get my hands on. As a part of a sangha for a while, I had a Zen 
um, meditation teacher. He was a monk. And, um, and then I also have interviewed a couple of people on the podcast, uh, on the podcast who uh, Bob Roth is one of my meditation teachers, and he was kind of more in the Indian tradition of, um, of transcendental meditation. And, and I got to tell you, just to lead this off, you know, one thing that your work certainly does is, for me, it, it, uh, and Buddhism, I think, did this in general. There, there are such amazing structures that Buddhism has, and it really does engender a sense of, like, where's my practice? What's my practice? And I noticed that on my own personal experience, you know, I, as a psychotherapist, as a, uh, as a, as a person who's really kind of under, trying to understand how people suffer and how we move through our suffering in our various life stages— um, I, I think to have a personal spiritual practice is maybe one of the antidotes to what you were talking about earlier, This um, and why maybe these religious structures kind of come to the foreground in times of need, because we were reminded, you know, the, the three jewels, right? One of them is, is to have a kind of path, and this book certainly does it, but I've, that's my general feeling about reading your work, is I initially kind of want to look around and organize my space and really create, get my ass on the cushion. So thank you for that kind of inspiration because I don't take that lightly and I, I want to take seriously the magic in our lived experience and how you way over there can have an impact of my little sacred space in here. So mm. now we get to open that up further. Thank you. Yeah, let's do it. I can't, I can't wait. <laughs> life, so, is, life is short. <laughs> Uh, yeah. Amen. Man. Well, I want to start with uh, also, so I've already said that I've read your book. I've, I've watched a couple of the, a number of the videos on your podcast or your, um, your, your YouTube series. One in particular was your talk at the Rubin in uh, 2016 that I thought was very good. The, the kind of a basic exploration of the, of the, the wheel of life and then also the, um, the, an overview of Buddhism. So could you, could you start just by you, you know, what's your, What's your kind of uh, your, your outer worldly, who who you who you is, and um, and and what interests you and drives you, and then we'll dive in. Sure, I mean I I am a father first of all, uh, struggling with two little kids in the middle of a pandemic, so that's that's always a good uh, humbling place to start. <laughs> And so never get too far ahead of myself, because if you're, uh, you know, on the learn, you know, on the cusp of any kind of lockdown with two kids, seven and five or seven and four, you know, you're it, it always shows you just how little, you know, <laughs> isn't that true? What did, I think is it Ram Das or somebody that said uh, he was talking about if you ever think you're enlightened, go live with your parents for a weekend. But I also think if you're ever enlightened, just have a just miniature you know, human have a being, couple of kids. you know, have a couple of kids. Yeah. <laughs> they will fuck with you. <laughs> so that's always a good place to start. They always show me my mind and, and how much more I have to learn. And, you know, I also always have so much respect for my wife who's got so much more integrity than I do. Oh. I know. Yeah. I have a so, shared, I agree. <laughs> <laughs> I, my wife continues to show me what a badass really looks like. Yeah. So, so on that note, with that a little bit of humility there, um, yeah, I mean, I'm, a, I'm a therapist by training. I, like you, I, you know, I went for some level of conventional training at the California Institute of Integral Studies in San Francisco, 
Uh, but throughout my training, I've always been lockstep um, following two parallel paths, one in Buddhism and, and one in psychology. And uh, so in my Buddhist training is just as long, uh, 25 years with some great teachers, Bob Thurman and Joe Luizzo and, and the Tibetan Lamas, uh, Geshe uh, Tenzin Sopa more recently, who's an enlightened master by my by my estimation. So I've, I've been blessed to be a student, you know, really a, uh, a dutiful student, someone who's practiced a lot of guru devotion, someone who's um, allowed myself to get steeped in the tradition uh, and not just be delighted or uh, amused at the superficial level, but really um, commit. And um, I think the biggest part of my training background is spending 20 years as a as a um, as a mentee. You know, the 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 institution of mentorship is one that I think is really missing. And as mm -hmm. you know, academic institutions, as academia takes over the world, and something is is missing from academia. You know the the where we've gone too heavy on the intellect and we've lost a lot of what it means to be around a master of a trade. It could be piano, it could be basket weaving, it could be carving, it could be boat making, it could be um, you know house building. Um, I learned more in twenty years of knocking my head up against a mentor than I did in four to three three degrees of education. Mm -hmm. So my, my path really, you know, and I just, I just think that it was, it was hard. It was really hard. I wanted to do things that I wasn't allowed to do. I was uh, put in my place over and over again. I was uh, asked to do things over and over and over again. I, it was old school. It was old school and it, it, it wasn't easy. And, but it was the best education I could ever have. And Joe Luizzo was a student of Bob Thurman, so I traced that lineage down from His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, Bob Thurman, of course, the first to, uh, Westerner to become an ordained Tibetan Buddhist, uh, found, you know, chair of Indo-Dependent Studies at Columbia University, and then his student, Joe Luizzo, who was a psychiatrist. And so, you know, Joe was the one to really in, in open the door for me to see what it would be like to fuse these traditions from the get-go. So right out of the gates in my training, the, these two traditions were woven together into a single, you know, tapestry. Uh, I learned a really far out and unique language along the way. Uh, so, I mean, I think that that really shaped my mind. Um, I spent a lot of time in Asia. I, I grew up in Hong Kong. I was born in Singapore. I've traveled extensively throughout the Far East. And so again, you know, life exposure and, and life experiences, living in monasteries, uh, doing field research, living with monks, um, putting my head on pilgrimage sites that are 2,000 years old. I mean, these are all part of my background and training and have really, really informed who I am as a person and, and how I also see the world. So I wanted to just flash forward from this sort of training because, uh, you know, in a way, gradual awakening and my my history with my teachers and fusing Buddhism with psychotherapy is, is almost like an old world to me. Um, mm. what, what brings me into the moment right now, of course, is the pandemic. And ever since the pandemic, you know, I have, this is a dark night of culture. This is the dark night of soul of culture. And I've just been um, 
probably you might share this with me, John, just that the different portals have opened that I never suspected or never anticipated. And uh, I'm a curious seeker, so I've just ventured down into a number of different disciplines, uh, including astrology and mythology and Jung and alchemy. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, these have occupied my, my mind more uh, recently, and uh, and I, with my background in twenty plus twenty five years almost in Buddhism and psychology, that I feel like that just all only just set up as a foundation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like I I, I think and, and my work with trauma and my work with Buddhism, my work with psychotherapy, they really provided a really nice foundation. But now there's like almost like building a, a, a scaffolding, which is what I really want to talk about with you because that scaffolding, the more interdisciplinary it can become, the more broad and the more rich, the more I think we can capture a clearer picture of what's happening on the planet right now. And then with that, even with agency, where are we going to move? What, where, what, is, what are we looking at right now? What is actually happening right now and where are we going? I think the more lenses that we can put on that, the better we're going to be. And and I guess that's that's one of the reasons why I responded so favorably, and I'm still responding so favorably to your uh, lecture on the wheel, uh, be, because it articulated such a, I mean, a structure of reality that really one can lean on. And and it's got a mythic element. It holds the paradoxes. It looks at all the hells and the heavens. And so I, I think that that's... There's a, there's a fundamental question about what is to be trusted. And what you and I know on some level, and really everybody knows by experience, is how we respond to threat and what happens when we're feeling threatened whether it's a overt, acute issue, or it's something a little beneath the surface, like a latent issue or a, uh, Adam Grant's writing about languishing a whole lot right now. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, a, that's an important image for us to keep in mind. Or cyclothymia, you know, these things that are beneath the surface that aren't so acute, but they're low-level um, psychological and uh, interpersonal and spiritual malaise that mm-hmm. because of the lack of our kind of mythic structure, we, are f- we fall back on resources that we never really initiated in, in the first place. So yeah. th- again, will you talk a little bit about that? Like what's, what is your structure um, and how you came to it? Kind of let's set up the issue and then we'll dive into some of the young and psychedelics. Yeah, okay, sure. I mean, we can use a Four Noble Truths is a wonderful framework that works cross-culturally because it really is medical. It's like, what is the problem? What is the cause of the problem? What are, is there, is there something that would resolve the problem? Is there a solution? And what's the path as a solution? You know, I think this is a great formula for, uh, especially for a dialogue like this. You know, I, if you and I look around, I think we both agree, whether it be as close as the patient we're sitting with to our armchair view of society and culture, I think there's a breakdown that's happening, uh, cultural, sociological, structural breakdown that's happening. Uh, and I think it's necessary. And I think there's a large evidence to support that this cosmic also, that there's, you know, 
a great number of many traditions, wisdom traditions, have similar calendar or astrological perspectives on our time where we are in a sea change, a very, very um, well-discussed and described sea change. You could call it the Piscean to the Aquarian. And in this sea change, structures break down. And whether those structures be the banking system that's breaking down, whether those are the our, our confidence in political regimes are breaking down, uh, the way we feed ourselves and our big agra and our big pharma are breaking down, our trust and tolerance of authorities breaking down, uh, civil unrest and the deep uh, the deep opening of just how rife pedophilia and racism and a lot of dark shadow material are being exposed as the tectonic plates begin to rift. And at the same time, this is also creating opportunities for regeneration and for something new. So every system that's been disrupted is also now you're starting to see regenerative agriculture is coming in. Uh, the, the medical industry is turning to sound therapy, energetics, bioenergetics, um, meditation, psychedelics uh, are emerging for political, for the, for, for the politics, uh, political domains, new, new infrastructures are being uh, put forth, new possibilities are being put forth. For the banking system, you start to see Bitcoin and uh, blockchain. So, I mean, we're interested in a very I mean, cataclysmic and regenerative moment. And the same is true for the individual. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I see somebody who feels dead inside, lost, mm-hmm. apathetic, especially young millennials. Uh, they have very little hope about the future. They know they've been sold a lie and they don't have an alternative. And they've been living in a concrete cinder block mega city and they've been spoon fed um, basically a paradigm or a mythos of materialism. And they have, there's something missing, but they don't even know what that is. And they have been indoctrinated into a worldview that sees only their body, their brain chemistry, making a paycheck on an assembly line of some form or another, and an, and a terminal death to, to look forward to. And I think just taking that step back and looking at like, this is what we're, this is what we have in store for our civilization breeds a sense of discontent, whether we're conscious of it or not. It breeds a sense of being already dead, this kind of nihilism that's rife and and basically all pervasive in the modern materialistic paradigm. And so, you know, this is for me the problem. And I think, you know, part of my training was to do CBT or like give a, you know, prescribe, you know, get get the consult from the psychiatrist and prescribe a medication. And I think that's, as Krishnamurti said, just trying to adjust a sick person to a sick society. There's something that we're not attending to. We're just moving the deck chairs on the Titanic. We're not addressing the fundamental root cause. Let me me push here. I have three. I'm fragmented, Miles. Um, So I want to define modern materialism, and I want to define nihilism. Um, so can we, cause I, I, it's funny you said that cause I started to notice I was beginning to wonder about metaphysics and that I, I was certainly attracted to this kind of Tibetan metaphysic that you get into, you reference cosmology and the quantum level of, and the way you talk about quantum is different than 
maybe some new age quantum, you know, it has a real teeth, you know? So uh, I want to define terms for anybody who needs to know that. Would you talk about materialism? Because it seems like that's one of the things you position as part of the problem, correct? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So I mean, cool. to take a step back, we're talking about worldview. Okay, and worldview is like the water that a fish swims in. Sometimes it's not that apparent. I mean, if I ask people, what's your worldview, they might not know what worldview they have, but everybody has a worldview. It's either been indoctrinated by culture, by society, family systems, or whatever. The worldview that we have as Westerns and even imported, as Westerners and even imported across the world, if you start with consumerism and you start with, um, you know, where we are in a kind of modern modernism is grounded in materialism, which is the belief that all there really is is what can be perceived with the five senses. That is what is real. If I can touch it, it's real. If I can't touch it, I have no idea how to relate to it. If I can't see it, I have no idea. I don't believe, quote unquote, believe it. it's real. Uh, so we are we are reduced to a bandwidth of reality in the same way that maybe human beings can only see a fraction of the uh, light spectrum, we have reduced ourselves to a bandwidth of viewing reality and therefore experiencing and interacting with reality that's merely materialistic. And because of that, you'll get phrases like, you know, our, our scientific paradigm has reduced a human being when they when we don't have a definition for consciousness. We don't believe consciousness exists. We believe that consciousness in the current paradigm is an epiphenomenon of the brain. So the brain is primary. The brain is primary. The brain exists. It has these functions, and that's who you are. You are this body. You are this brain. And the brain and the body will die, and when we die, you will die. And so this is the connection between materialism or a materialistic paradigm or a materialistic worldview and nihilism. They actually are bed sisters, you know, bedfellows. Nihilism is the view or belief that nothing essentially matters. As a result of seeing one in a terminal life perspective, as a result of seeing oneself merely as a constituent of matter, nothing matters because we're matter. Because we're only matter, nothing matters. How about that? Mm -hmm. Because we're only matter, nothing matters. And this translates to the millennial experience. You've got a young 25-something or 30-something that sees themselves in a terminal life perspective. They've got student debt up the hilt. There's no future job prospects. They live in a cinder block civilization. Uh, they can't even see a tree outside their, their bloody window. Uh, the pollution and the ecological uh, demise or collapses all around them, and you're asking them, "Who are you? And, and what what are you what are you doing with yourself?" And and they have no answer, because they have no mythology, mm -hmm. because the mythology they've been indoctrinated to is this material world for a very temporal time is all there is, and so you better get yours while you can. So you better play video games and make money and eat and shop and watch food porn or other kinds of porn and just indulge your senses. So hedonism is like a trifecta. Hedonism, materialism, and nihilism, they all are, they're all lumped in together. They're all, you know, and this is, I think, this is a very general way of understanding the plight of our culture. It, it, but couldn't it be said 
because you you check me on this right like i i go into a place of looking at not wanting to scapegoat on any kind of philosophical or interpersonal or tribal space you know I tend to hear things like this in terms of this is human. This is what we do. We tend to have a ten. There, there's an individual tendency that seeks to understand, conceptualize, judge, categorize, to to grasp the the world of phenomena of of matter and ideas and fantasies and feelings. And I want to in, incarnate it into this moment. And so that trend or tendency of our human experience carries a cost with it, which is that if we take that to its conclusion, then what we get is materialism and nihilism, you know, and I like this relationship. So what concerns me sometimes is that we say, oh, materialists, you know, versus materialist, you know, like, and, and that's what I think psychotherapy and kind of what your work by looking at these frameworks helps people understand is that we all have a lens back to the, where you started. We all have a worldview and let's start to question and query. It's so funny. This is the part of our conversation. I just did an episode on mythology and worldview. <laughs> so this is, this is, this is great. I mean, and I think this is one of the reasons why we were, we, we were both excited to chat because there's a certain shared kind of philosophical underpinning that we're, we're exploring. And now we get to see where we differ and what, what goes on in that space. So, right, how's that so far? Is there anything that you want to push up against? No, I, 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 yep. Okay, good. So, uh, I I guess I'm trying to figure out what, you know, in your your worldview that you're talking about, you look at a, a Tibetan practice that has a worldview for you to understand reality. So you your inherent tendencies toward ego co- the ego colonizing its experience doesn't overwhelm you and turn your life into a meaningless husk is that fair to say i think that's fair to say yes and cool. that's not that's not also to suggest that um a materialistic reductionistic scientific paradigm can't bear fruit right i think that that would be you know, in a way, a betrayal of all the values that we have created in the last 300 years through science. So I, I'm not an anti-scientist. Uh, I'm a scientist by training. I, I, had to, mm-hmm. I had to perform all the functions of a scientist. And when I'm sitting with a client, I, mean, I think some sort of objectivity and analysis are really, really important. But I think even now, as we're in the pandemic with the anti-vax and vax, um, you know, tension, I think you're also now seeing the beginnings of the breakdown of science, which is mm-hmm. part and parcel of the arch- archetypal uh, and the astrological predicament that we're in, that we have, in a way, displaced religion and favored science over the last 300 years, and now science itself is also beginning to break down. It cannot solve every problem. It cannot uh, conceive of every situation. It has its own inherent flaws. You can have as much research proving one thing and then depending on your point of view you could find research that contradicts it and so you know science you know we have grown too reliant on knowing things from a scientific point of view that doesn't mean that it we should abandon it and nor nor uh, but i but i i'm 
I kind of feel that it's time to open or expand the notion of what is possible, and that means uh, multiple perspectives and multiple paradigms will have to coexist. And this, this at first creates cognitive dissonance that requires mm-hmm. a lot of tolerance. Um, you know, the Newtonian paradigm and the quantum paradigm coexist. Uh, they don't neutralize each other. Mm-hmm. And so the world of the science that we've been used to has to find its way in a larger totality, which I think, from my point of view, because of my own bias, I think the Tibetans had a very accommodating worldview. And I, I don't think the Tibetans or the Tibetan Buddhists are anti-science. They have a very, very long lineage of uh, reason, very sharp, critical reason. Um, but they don't also exclude the numinous. And the case in point I'll give you is that the Dalai Lama, who everybody loves and thinks is cute, sits on a throne and serves, at one time, served the function of a political uh, theocratic leader, making worldly decisions for his people, um, and has been, in recent times, very, very uh, accommodating for interdisciplinary dialogue among scientists. So there's been the biggest push of inclusion of science in Buddhism that ever than has ever happened under the His Holiness the Dalai Lama, up until including allowing his uh, most adept meditators being used as guinea pigs in their in the brain research and the brain uh, exploration, and yet at the same time in a different context, the Dalai Lama consults an oracle on the state board. I was going to say that, man. I'm glad you went there. Yes. Sears. Yes. Yeah. I mean, in fact, if it weren't for his consultation with the Oracle, he may not have left Tibet in time in a secret window of three days (laughs) to pass the Himalayan pass into freedom. Right. So all I'm saying is they're not anti-science, but they also have a larger framework that's much more accommodating of other worlds beyond material, other considerations beyond the material. So this is interesting because it, what I think Brian Marescu and um, a number of folks are getting into is, and, and certainly even myself, is this lack of tradition. You know, I always thought I was going to find some deeply spiritual practice in a jungle in South America, and, and that's fine, or on the plains of, uh, of Northern America. But what's, th- there's a lineage here that goes back into the Greek and the Mediterranean um, areas, the Etruscans and the Ionians and the um, that, that very much attended to the oracle. This is yes. pre-Christian, you know, this is... Yes, um, yes. And so, so that language system... Now you're exciting me. You're heading into territory that, I, that, is, <laughs> that is the most exciting for me right now. So yeah. keep going. Now you've got me. Yeah, Go on. So the, well, and I'm, I'm learning Greek, and I have... Uh, it, it, what I'm learning looking at religious systems and magic and not the ways in which that does or doesn't exist, but how have people in positions of power affected and changed the public perception of these kinds of mysterious uh, Dionysian kind of irrational spaces. And, and so what I what I where I hear your you know your Western scientific paradigm because we've turned science into the idol as into opposed the new religion. to 
Yeah. As opposed to saying, this is a method, guys. Let's like, we're, we're using a method. Don't let it use us. And, and so underneath that, it has been, has been some kind of a, a repression against ecstatic experience, against subjectivity. You know, I want to read materialists, you know, if they hang their hat on that, you know, yes, that's what I am. I say, great, I want to read you because I want to figure out what's in your shadow because I can learn more about my perspective too. So, and what tends to be in the shadow is you said it earlier with Dan Dennett's uh, incredible work and the epiphenomenon, you know, what, what does that thought thread take you to? And what it takes you to in a soundbite, which I understand it's just a soundbite, is that consciousness is an epiphenomenon. Uh, it's a, as a result of a collision of net, a network and the lights just go on when a particular mathematical number of nodes binds together to form a network. And now I'm looking at like the panpsychic phi, you know, this. So, um, that you said Oracle, and then I, I, and that is quite frankly a metaphysical truth that I'm mining all over. So, what what excites you about that? Oh, I just I've been you know researching for a new book, and the you know it it combines the, the disciplines of which is why I contacted you, Jung, uh, Joseph Campbell, and Tibetan alchemy. Mm-hmm. And since it since we're currently amidst a psychedelic revolution you know of course brian's book has been instrumental and you know his passage of walking the pilgrimage of the Elysian mysteries all the way up to christ as a kind of new torchbearer of the lineage and then the shutdown the church repression of this opportunity to taste the deathless had me thinking, what is the connection between the mystery schools and the East? Yeah. And I started following the trail from the Ionian through Asia Minor up into the Hindu Kush. So we're in modern day Pakistan and we're in Pakistan, Afghanistan now where at one time Alexander the Great had created a number of Greco kingdoms. Mm -hmm. And you see statues of Dionysus there, and you see there the legacy of a viniculture where there was wine drinking and winemaking in this pristine valley called the Swat Valley. And it is in the Swat Valley that from the Buddhist side and the Hindu tantric side, they believe is the birthplace for Buddhist tantra. Mm Mm-hmm. And the it, word ambrosia yeah. is very much connected with the Sanskrit amrita. They're both talking about a substance that gives access to the to the deathless state. And I, I I'm I'm researching how much influence there has been between the Dionysian or the Greek mystery schools and the 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 Indian or the Indic tantric systems that come up around 6th and 7th, 8th century. Right. But my main thing is that I'm interested in the soul because I think that's what we fucking lost. Right. And we're trying to revive the soul. And whether we do that by way of psychedelics that harken back 
through uh, Brian's work to the mystery schools, or we do it through meditative culture, Indic meditative culture, or we find other avenues, what we have lost is what we're looking for, the soul, mm-hmm. which can't be quantified by a magnifying glass in some lab experiment. And so it, it, it will require a re-envisioning of our paradigm in order to really access what I believe we're missing or what we've lost. It's, I had a weird thought about the dark retreat, which is something I've been interested by. So you're picking up on something that I've been wondering about, that in my Greek kind of magic exploration, I, I tend to also reference Tibet, what little I know. But what I do know, it stinks of this area. You know, you're like these... These people were doing something very similar. They were going into caves and they were, you know, experiencing ecstatic, uh, whether it was from starving themselves and, uh, and having those kinds of vigilant practices to go, you know, descend to Persephone, or it was mm-hmm. a substance, or the cave of Trophonius is a place that I'm learning had an oracle and you took viper venom. And I got to tell you the first time uh, uh, Amon Hillman is a guy I interviewed uh, a while ago and he's a, he's a powerhouse and he, he says shit that people can't make sense of. He's like, he says the shit that people are like, uh, they just reject it. Right. But what he's, what he's doing is looking at how the human body was the apothecary. And mm. with these substance, there were c- communion involved at times, bodily fluids, sexual unions, you know, seminal fluids, vaginal fluid, menstrual blood, other mm-hmm. kinds of salves that were uh, that the, the 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 antidote to a particular viper venom was cultivated through the vagina of a of an oracle, you know, of a and. And I took it to a friend of mine who's an expert in this tradition, and I said, look, these people were doing some radical stuff. He's like, that's totally Tantra. He's yeah. like, they were doing that stuff then. <laughs> Which we're getting to this intersection point yeah. of, of that's a common split for us, the East-West split. But yeah. what you're looking at is where they were, the seat of this split. Yes, and I and I there's no doubt there's no doubt from the researchers that I've talked to Glenn Mullen, who's a forty year Lama, Western researcher in Tibetan Buddhism, Ian Baker, also Dr. Ian Baker, another fantastic researcher and psychonaut, that uh, sacred substances were in fact and still probably very under the surface still remain used in the Hindu and Buddhist tantric ceremonies. But more importantly, that that lineage, when you talk about this apothecary, or you look at, you look at it as an alchemical crucible, the, the, the tantras now, from a more mainstream point of view, the, the, the body is the alchemical crucible, and the, the yoking of the, um, the internal winds in the crucible at four fingers below the navel, in the chalice, the drawing down of the winds and the drawing them up the central channel, the Shashumna, and how these are um, manipulated in order to release 
drops. These drops are not physical drops. These drops are energetic drops. They're symbolic. And inside those drops, particularly the one at the heart center, is what I think is the elixir of mortality. That's what that's what the Holy Grail is, and that's what the Amrita or the Ambrosia is. And I don't think these are mutually contradictory. I think if probably Brian continued the rigorous expedition that he started and continued east, I'm sure he would find remnants of a sacred substance, an actual substance. Like I think that I think in the Swat Valley he would find it. I think that the Dionysian legacy just was incorporated. Um, but then at some point, I think there also then became, it became less physical and more um, symbolic. But not in the corruption or the rigid or restrictive way that he talks about the church sacrament of the Eucharist becoming, becoming um, idle. Like it doesn't really, it doesn't create a potency. It's, it's like a cardboard cutout version that doesn't give people an access to the, to the numinous anymore. It's mm-hmm. just a, it's just rote and empty. I think the, the Tibetans, the, the psychonauts, they're practicing a very deep, type of meditation that allows them access to the subtle body and in that subtle body experience they're able to manipulate their nervous system to gain access to these deathless states when i say deathless i'm using brian's terminology there immortality immortality is achieved by way of manipulation of the subtle nervous system that's the legacy that's the legacy of tibetan the the tantric path so will you go into that a bit that's a well yeah. I mean, it's it's really, it's it's profound. I mean, I think, you know, where I am personally is that I think the the argument against this is that it takes too long and such a intensive training regiment. And I mean, Brian's work really shows that the average person could participate in the mis- mysteries and with some very basic preparation could have that experience. And why would you deny a, a human being access to a state of immortality, which is their birthright? You could do that. You could do that. The masses, unless you were a murderer or you couldn't speak the, the language, you had, you had access to it. Mm-hmm. Whereas the people that I've studied under it's very secret. It takes a lot of time and preparation. My book, Gradual Awakening, represents 20 years of my initiation. The, the book, Gradual Awakening, is what is required to prepare even to get a tantric initiation. So if I was to ever write another book, it would be like, I've just, the journey of gradual, the gradual path that I lay out in my book is really preparation for tantra, at least in one lineage. And it's so intense because they realize that your mind is very, very susceptible. And this is where you and I as psychologists could have a discussion about the kind of structure that needs to be in place in order to have a profound breakthrough experience, whether delivered by substance or meditative experience. There has to be framework. There has to be preparation. Otherwise, something breaks down. Otherwise, a, a rupture won't take. Uh, so this is a great question I've been thinking a lot about. Does it need to be esoteric and hidden? In a way, yes, and in a way, no. I mean, you these deep states and the subtle nervous system, the architecture within, 
if you play with fire, you're going to get burned. Mm. And it, and there are plenty of people. Okay, I'm going to just take a step back. I'm sure in the last several years, people have come to you as a therapist saying, I've been down to Peru, I've taken ayahuasca, I've taken a big <laughs> dose of mushrooms, and I'm all fucked up because I don't know how to deal with my mind or reality or where I am. Like, there is a considerable shadow to the psychedelic revolution that doesn't make it to Instagram. Totally. People are ill-prepared. They have taken basically a, a, a vacation to Peru for three days, or they've gone to this center or that center. They've met a shaman that they've only just met that's all too willing to receive them for a five-day ceremony, and then they're cast back into the world unprepared. Mm-hmm. And I've, I've only, it's only grown in numbers, people that have had more disturbing experiences. Well, the same is true for people that I used to receive on the retreat end who did very intensive three-year retreat or very intensive meditative retreat and weren't ready or had, and weren't, didn't have this proper support or couldn't actually make an integration back into society. And one thing as a pilgrimage leader, I lead pilgrimages I give a lot of orientation for our departure, but it's actually the return that's much more difficult. Right. It's much more difficult to come home from the mountaintop than it is to ascend. <laughs> yes, it is. It is. <laughs> so... Hang on, because I want to get that... Um, so we're talking about a mountaintop experience that is unique and a culture that doesn't support, and even worse, criticizes and diminishes with contempt those kinds of experiences. So, and that's what we see in adolescence, right? It's like, um, I just, I'm, I'm, I'm putting together a YouTube episode on sex and sexuality, and if you look up... This is sad. I don't need to laugh. If you look up areas of the country, let's just stick with the United States. If you look up counties in the country that are highest in teen pregnancies and teen STDs, transmissions, right? It's always correlated with conservative religious communities. So it's inherently based on repression. So Mm -hmm. rather than say to people, which is what I've done a lot, I talk to kids about sex. I go to schools and I, t- I talk to parents. I want to educate and help people understand because I've sat with a lot of adults and children and I'll ask them about their understanding of sex and they're like, well, I don't know. Like, and my parents never really told me and I learned from the media or some kind. So we, we know there's an issue. <laughs> uh, but because we look at it through a worldview or a particular ideology, we see it through that lens rather than saying, shit, these kids are fucking and they're doing it irresponsibly and we should help them be more responsible. So we've got to talk to them about this power that they have rather than let them go out into the world uninitiated. Hmm. So, so, And here we are in esoteric and hidden because we, we, we have, well, maybe we do and maybe... There seem what you're saying in the psychedelic movement is there's not been any kind of initiation. It's a it's a cultural fad. You know, you read about Will Smith going to do ayahuasca, and it's like, well, fuck, Kim Kardashian had a great trip. How's mine going to be? You know, and it and brings us 
it brings us full circle with the, sorry to interrupt you, but it brings no, us full circle with the view. This is the problem with the view. And what I mean by that is if you have the materialistic view, you will go and extract mindfulness from Buddhism and you will treat it like a technology, like a workout expecting enlightenment. And you will go and extract ayahuasca from the deep lineage and worldview of the Amazon and expect profound breakthrough. But that's what we do. That's our legacy of colonialization and imperial extraction. We've just gone to the we've just gone to uh, uh, to to the diamond mine in Africa and taken what we want, and left the rest. And this is this is a problem with view is that you have very yearning people looking for something that's not provided in their culture, but they're indoctrination is so thorough that they think if they just take a three-day trip to Peru or to Central America or they do this or they do that and they come home, it'll all be fine. What they're not doing is understanding that the very root of the problem is the view, and the view has to change along with everything else, not just your behavior. You're not just going to learn how to meditate for 15 minutes and it's all going to be fine. You have to change how you see reality. And having a breakthrough where you see reality for possibly the first time, but then going home where it's not reinforced, Mm -hmm. this is why you have such dissonance. And this is why people come to see you, John, and say, I'm having problems integrating, reintegrating after this profound experience. Yeah, I think the best—my brother said something after I had a pretty radical experience— And he said to me, true wisdom, he said, now your job is to remain loyal to your experience. What what was revealed to you, and now you remain loyal to that, meaning that I take it seriously, that it's uniquely mine, that I don't have to query its existence because it's unquestionable. The only thing that makes me question the reality of that experience is this view right? Because I come back to, I, I go from a dream, I'm totally in it. And then I wake up and my ego, my worldview comes back on. And I go, oh, that was just a dream. But you, you, you assume that being an isolate, your will is enough to combat the forces of culture. And I, I don't, I don't agree with that. I mean, even right. the strongest of us need mirroring and are susceptible yes. to the mirroring of our culture and our family dynamics and our societies. So this is why Tantra is taught in crucible, in community, and in initiation. And that, that initiation doesn't just last a few days. You, you, you create micro-communities, sangha, because the idea is that you're, you're opening your mind. You've done your preparation so that your mind can receive this wisdom, but on the back end, you've created a microclimate so that you can nourish it. Mm-hmm. And that's that's what I think is one of the vital contributions of the Tibetan arts because they've got the full. It's one of the. It's one of the last remaining. It would be like proponents of Eleusis still alive now, saying, "Come and we'll show you." And you do the initiation. You get a long legacy of study. 
you have the initiation, and then you have the back end, all the preparation for the return, all in place, including a mentor, including community, including all the supports that you need, because there's this an understanding that just sending someone into the profundities of, of reality and then casting them back as isolates into a world that doesn't mirror their recognition mm -hmm. can create tremendous psychic disturbance and dis disequilibrium. Because mm -hmm. nobody's going to mirror back for you what you saw. On the other hand, New Age movements, maybe like, maybe I've never been to Burning Man, but I assume Burning Man is a tight-knit group of people because they understand they've all been through something common out there in the desert and they want to repeat it over and over again uh, because there's that sense of familiarity and that sense of tribe and that sense of common value and they want to do it repeat over and over and over again, have this profound communal religious, pseudo-religious experience out in the desert and then create a kind of secret network or club to maintain the fervor of it. Right. The pushback and I have with that, it's not, it's not all that deep uh, philosophy. It doesn't run deep. It hasn't been enriched over the centuries through the conglomeration of repeated usage by human culture. And so okay, what so kind of, yeah. Go, go into that for a second, because what I want to pull out of that is that there are inherent structures to communal spaces and that ethics are formed over time but but there are patterns and structures that exist and i think what you're saying is that through a tibetan tradition these kinks have been worked out at least as as best they can for the time being they've worked out all the kinks of how these how these deep existential interpersonal intrapsychic symbolic structures are expressed yeah, I mean, I think that's the power of culture, is that through repeated trial and error, something is woven over time and maintained and passed on that reflects the profundity of the human mind. I and mean, when we're talking about immortality, we're talking about the soul. Could you imagine anything more complex to work out? And we're talking about two and a half, three thousand years of legacy in order to really refine that. And that's what the psychonauts of the Buddhist culture have done. They, 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 and they, they did it very scientifically. They did their psych psychic exploration. First, there was the Buddha who had the breakthrough experience. I mean, we're talking about somebody, a human being, who had a breakthrough experience into the nature of reality and proclaimed he had discovered the deathless state, no longer bound to samsara, the cycles of stress and trauma, free. And then he spends, unlike Christ, who was murdered right away, spends 40 years delivering profound, for profound teachings and creating a network so that this experience could be reproducible. Which is where I think Brian's book did a real service because he's showing like part of the repression was that the early church didn't want people to have such power. Mm-hmm. They didn't, because it would undermine the social structure of the institution. Whereas the Buddha wasn't murdered. He was free to roam in India. They were much more receptive to the message. There was much more inclusivity. You could have Jainism and Buddhism and Hinduism and various tantras all not vying for market share, but giving tolerance. The Buddha had 40-year run of teaching. 
And so the point is that in that time, he created networks where his teaching and institution were replicated. And then you have a long legacy of people that had this, this profound breakthrough. They had the enlightenment over and over and over and over again. And when each successive member of the lineage has these experiences, they start talking about how they got there, what, what it was like, how it can be reproduced, uh, what, you know, how, how it can be refined, how the art of teaching it can be refined. Yeah. Where are the shortcomings? Where are the obstacles? Creating caveats and workarounds and medicinal uh, salves for all of the dark recesses in the labyrinth of your mind where it could all go so wrong. I mean, the corpus of teaching is so enormous, but unlike your study of the Greek, where it's really, you'd be hard pressed to find a mystic these days in the Greek tradition, right? You could find a couple of them. Yeah, yeah. I've been looking. (laughs) Yeah. It's, uh, would you talk about samsara? Samsara, samsara means, translates as aimless wandering as literal translation, samsara, aimless wondering. And what it is, is the understanding that the nature of reality is perceptually based, that we our perception of our view of reality is clouded or obscured. And as a result of blindness, as a result of not seeing reality clearly, we create karma or activities. Those activities then create manifestations. They create worlds onto themselves. And, and we remain mired in a cycle of stress and re- what, what Freud would call replication or re- repeating. So there's a sense that because of blindness, we're bumping up against the world and we're reacting. And as a result of our reactions, we, for, we, we, we perpetuate our misery. And this is what you and I do sitting down with clients. They come in with the presenting problem, and we both know the presenting problem is just the tip of the iceberg. We get deeper and deeper and deeper. Usually there's some kind of wound. There's some kind of child wound or systemic wound, and that wound has informed their perceptual lens. And as a result of this contaminated way of seeing, they are repeatedly repeating what it is that they already learned about themselves in the world and what's going to happen to them. They're in a unconscious process of replication. That much that Jung and, and Freud discovered is very congruent with the notion of samsara. Mm-hmm. Blindness leads to repeated cycles of misery. And therefore, illumination disrupts the cycle. You could say insight disrupts the, the cycle. Yeah, and so in a way, our history is revealed to us in what we encounter in the present and the future. Yes, and there's a there's a wonderful Tibetan um, there's a wonderful Tibetan adage that says that it says you don't need to consult the soothsayer or the oracle if you want to know your past. Look at your current experience. Mm-hmm. If you want to know your future, look at your current action. I'll break it down for you. Mm-hmm. You don't need to go to an astrologer, although I do all the time. You don't need to consult the oracle, although if they were available, we should. But if you want to know your past, look at your current experience. What is arising in your experience now 
from a karmic point of view has been predetermined by what you have said, thought, and done in the past. If you want to know your future, look at your current action because it is through your current action or your reaction to your current subjective experience that's laying down the framework and the building blocks for the person and experience you're going to have in the future. So in that micro moment between experience and reaction, you have car basically karma theory. What's happening to you in this moment is the ripening effect of your past. How do I know that? You take any example and you say, if there were 10 of you having the same experience of a fire alarm, would you have the same subjective experience? And the answer is no. No. So whatever is arising in your little brain box is different from the person, even though it's the same scenario, the same context and the same situation, the experience of the moment is being filtered. What is it being filtered by? Conditioning from the past. If you were in a fire as a, as a kid, hearing a fire bell, or if you were in 9-11 during New York City and you, 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 that beautiful blue sky and the, 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 the uh, uh, fighter jets flying overhead or the sound of a fire engine, the associated links would create a tremendous upsurge of trauma and fear, where there's, whereas somebody else wouldn't notice that. They just see the blue sky and a, and a aircraft moving overhead. So if you want to know your past, look at your current experience. It Right here, right now is the ripening effect of the things that you have said, thought, and done in the past. If you want to know your future, look at how you react. Now, most of us react to our subjective experience in the same way it's become automatic. If I feel ashamed, I will isolate. That's my story. As soon as I feel ashamed, I isolate. Well, if I isolate, what happens? No one sees me. And if no one sees me, I don't get support. And if I don't get support, the shame stays alive. It can't get disrupted. It stays uh, in momentum, in play, like a wheel in spin. So if you want to know your past, look at your current experience. Uh, someone, someone, someone doesn't... So you send out an email and, uh, and you, don't get, you don't get a reply. It's just a non-reply. That's what the situation is. What happens to some people? Yeah. What, it's incredible, isn't it? Mm -hmm. You don't get a text within 10 minutes. What happens to people? They're replaying a story that they've already lived. Someone doesn't love me. Somebody doesn't care about me. I've been abandoned. I did something wrong. Then how do they react? What do they do? They get angry. They send a firing email. Or they you know, get needy and clingy. I, I, where are you? Where are you? Then that person receives the clingy, needy email. And what are they inclined to do as a result of your neediness? Withdraw. Back the fuck off. That's right. And when they do that, it reinforces the abandonment syndrome all over again. Mm -hmm. That's samsara. Yeah. And, and so there's the kind of Freudian approach where we look to the history and we see where the we reduce it to my wound. And what I liked about Jung and what he was looking at, he said, because of in relationship to all this stuff, my environment, my relationships, my intrapsychic world, my uh, experiences, my tendencies, my view, my time of birth, all that stuff. 
that our trajectory in our future is limited by particular patterns in relationship to um, the way that reality functions and the way that humans behave or the way we think. You know, we, we think we have this infinite amount of choice, but it's really like, I, like this is how I'm going to behave. So that becomes a pattern or a force by which I orient my life and then my meanness, my unique soul, is taken over by this agenda or this need. And so I'm not the human multiplicity that I am. I'm this reality, and that I can get caught in a cycle of that reality and not be aware of it. Mm. Right. Okay. Well, keep going. Teach me a little bit about um, what Jung was talking about with the self. So, yeah, that is it. I mean, there's, there is some kind of an essence that he called, you, you made a reference about it. He said at some point it's the center point and circumference, you know, and, and that gets into a paradox, you know, which sounds a lot like no self. So, so this essence, you know, this out of this vessel it, it is filled with substance you know but the vessel itself is patterned it, it it you know if any kind of vessel you know line up all the different kinds of vessels and they all look very different but they have a a, a function you know this is the crucible or the the container and the self is the container wherein all the magic happens and then he structured his psyche in relationship to the outer world, the inner world, the ego, the shadow, the archetypes, you know, which are on some level envisioned, which he said the self and the ego and the shadow are somewhat archetypal as well, that the, 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 there are these, uh, for me, they're equated to a riverbed. You know, there's this riverbed and it's filled and it's dependent upon my biology, my environment, my uh, psychology, my spirituality, you know, and that gets filled with some kind of content. Um, but the, the archetype itself is filled with our personal experience. And, and, but what he's saying is that the archetype, mother, father, so on and so forth, is a need. What we see in our clinical practices is somebody says, you know, my dad never did this. He never uh, took me out into the wilderness, or he never taught me how to do finances, or my mother never um, gave me any affirmation, or um, um, it was overwhelming to me, was overly needy and dependent because she was anxious, and so she intervened on me in ways that didn't allow me to have my own development. So I have this inherent need of mothering or fathering, and we know what happens when people don't get mothered or fathered, and that's different culturally, right? Like, it, it, I'm not going to say there's any one way to do it, uh, except for I would say that one way to do it is to give your, um, your presence and attention when the child needs it, and don't give it when the child doesn't need it. <laughs> You know? So there's so so that vessel is this self. It's this kind of cohesive idea of this is the place where all this stuff happens. Mm -hmm. uh, 
and what do you what do you hear in that from your lens? So I I hear that it's um, a totality. It's an openness. It's an openness, and it contains. It doesn't negate ego. It doesn't negate shadow. It allows for them. Right. But if you don't have that openness, then you are constricted and defined by ego. You are constricted and defined by shadow. If you can break through to the totality or the openness, there's much more play, let's say. There's much more give. There's much more possibility. There's much more malleability. Uh, so that, I think, I, 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 I'm not a scholar of Jung, but I would say the concept of emptiness in Buddhism provides very much the same kind of breath of fresh air, the same kind of malleability or or you know malleability is really a great word shape-shifting reality shape-shifting personality shape-shifting experience is the hallmark product or byproduct of one's intuitive understanding of emptiness without emptiness there's only rigidity and reactivity with emptiness there's creative flexibility there's there's knowing how to respond. There isn't an obliteration of the self. I think this is one of the big misconceptions of emptiness. Mis emptiness misunderstood is nihilism. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Emptiness, understood yeah. correct emptiness understood correctly is relativity. Okay, say more about that. So you have a duality. You have ultimate truth and you have relative truth. Relative truth is where most of us exist. We live in the world of inter, inter, intersecting uh, experiences, people, places, and things that have been, that we can brush up against and have experiences with. Then there is ultimate reality, which is if you look closely at any one of those things, they all dissolve upon analysis. You can't find them. You can't identify any one of those things. So it's like you take a trip into the, you take a supercharged trip into the quantum layer of reality where you see that things are mostly space. Okay? But if you take it too far into mostly space, you can go off a deep end and you can start saying and thinking that nothing exists. Oh, it's mostly space. And this happens in the spiritual community as a major spiritual bypass. If, they, if people have a breakthrough Kensho experience and they see that they're selfless, then they start going, well, what does anything matter? Right. If you start hearing, what does it matter? Oh, the tsunami in, in, in 2006, what does it matter? It's all empty. It's all an illusion. You get these Advaita Vedanta people who misunderstand things and they start going, it's all an illusion. What are you so upset about? The wars in Afghanistan, the, the, the starvation, what are, you, what are you reacting to? It's all an illusion. That's fucking crazy. Mm -hmm. That's a misunderstanding of things. That's going too far to the extreme of emptiness until you hit a event horizon called nothingness and misunderstand that to be the truth. Well, the same is true on the other side. You can think that reality is exactly as it appears. The, the computer is exactly as it appears. It's substantial in itself. Myself is exactly as I appear. I'm a 46-year-old man. And that has its own craziness too. 
So what the Buddha discovered was a, what's called a middle way, where you take mm. from the extremes the truth without the, without the, without the a tendency to go overboard. And I like this image. I think this image is really helpful in understanding true non-duality. If you had a fan, you know, like a fan, and it was one of these very, very thin Chinese rice paper that's so thin that it's almost transparent. You can see, lucidly see the sunlight and the forms through it. And on one side, you had conventional reality, and you turn the fan on the other side, you had ultimate reality. You have form, emptiness, form, emptiness, form, emptiness, form, emptiness, form, emptiness, form, emptiness. It's, it's the same thing. Mm -hmm. It's the same thing. And actually, if you stopped it and you saw form from the form side, you could get to the emptiness. And if you turned it around and from emptiness, you'd have to come back into form. And so how this equates with the Jung model is that that spaciousness, the emptiness, is actually a womb that's pregnant with possibility. Shunyata karuna garbam. One of my favorite Sanskrit quotes from the literature. Shunyata, emptiness. Karuna, compassion. Garbam, the womb. Emptiness is not a blank canvas. It's not a blank cave. It's a womb of possibility. Start to feel, that's starting to feel a little bit like what you were saying Jung was mm -hmm. talking about, but the notion of self. When you have that womb of possibility, then you have a much more dynamic relationship to the ego. The ego, there's nothing wrong with the ego. Why would you ever want to get rid of the ego? Your ego sitting over there, dapper jacket, you've got a nice trim beard, you play, you play guitar, and you're a, you're a, you're a technician on, on, in, your, in your podcast, you're your own sound master in your podcast, and you're, a, you're an explorer of Greek and a therapist. I love that. And yeah, you have wife fun. and kids, and that's, that's where your self is expressing itself. But if you didn't have the openness, you'd be stuck in all your rigid patterns. But if you had that access to spaciousness, you could undermine your patterns. You could work with your patterns. You could create new ones. You had a... Because um, you actually hit on a, my, my main question, which was about some of these choices that we make in metaphysics. You know, that... Okay, well, are we at a blank slate? Well, no, we've, we've established that, you know, no blank slate. So when you're in a Western academic territory and you're saying we're, we're no blank genetics and we come intrinsically potentiated with um, the, the, as James Hillman talks about, he says that um, the acorn will become an oak tree. Mm -hmm. You know, like I have some kind of patterned form that is unique and it's present in the, at, at, at conception and in the womb. And on some level, and this is where Jung was getting, on some level, my life is a, is a flowering and a lived experience of accepting the invitation to allow for that unique soulful part of me to, to become fully expressed. Mm. And, to, and, that I, and to your point earlier, and to work that out in culture, because I can't just be... Um, distracted by um, 
you know, sex, drugs, and rock and roll, which I've recently heard is a phrase that really dates me. And so I, but I still use it. So, cause that, and that's your anadonia and adonia uh, split. You were referencing uh, adonia earlier and then anadonia, um, you know, what is happiness? What is satisfaction? What is, what is a good life? What, what are our questions that we continue to all in every culture ask ourselves? How should I live? How should I be? What's, how can I flourish? What is fruitful? What is unique? What is soulful? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, so we, we can agree on this, you know, that like, we agree on a lot. But what, what I'm coming to, to hear, to understand is that from my lineage, when I hear a term of nothingness or, I guess, emptiness or um, no self, you know, it, it offends the ego rather than saying, no, if you go to quantum, which is our theory that's currently, I mean, it's what we, when we say quantum, it's an understanding of a deeper aspect of reality that's based upon our capacity to image and understand aspects of reality that aren't imageable, you know? <laughs> And, and so we, we say, okay, we'll take that to a conclusion, and one day it'll be expanded even more. But what we do know is that there's this um, uh, libido or essence or chi or energy that, f- for all these multidisciplinary experiences in our life, starts to take on form. And the form is informed by its experience but the no self or the emptiness is that there's no intrinsic or inherent value statement of what that is at the beginning or in the vessel. Yes. Okay. Thank you. I just had a good insight. And then, uh, but, but you have to take it one step more, which is that emptiness is always combined with what's called bodhicitta. Bodhicitta is from the relative side. So you have the emptiness, which is the openness. If you don't like emptiness, say openness or potentiality or the quantum field or the, or, or the wave-like structure. But then from the conventional side, you have bodhicitta, the mind of enlightenment, the, the altruistic resolve it's defined as, the spirit of enlightenment, Bob Thurman's translation, spirit of enlightenment, the altruistic motivation. So first I think we have to... Um, take a step back to our four, four, uh, four Noble Truths framework. We did the problem. We discussed the etiology. Part of, part of the solution is that I think we're both agree, agreeing between the lines here that there is a multi-life continuity. Mm-hmm. I, I think this is what's missing, and I think this is, in, in my work, this is what's really important. Some of the teachings that I do with my students is, opening the mind to the possibility of a multi-life continuity of consciousness. This has always been a given in Tibetan Buddhism. It's essential. Mind and body are different. The mind continues. It's immaterial. We could call it soul. We could call it soul. There is a soul. It's not a fixed permanent thing. It's a changing flux of uh, continuity. It, it transcends the body. It goes into multi-life a multi-life, a multi-perspectival experience. What's important is that that soul be aligned with a strong motivation or principle of altruism. This is what gives the soul purpose. The thrust 
of the soul is to see itself as an agent of change for oneself and others. That's the purpose of life. The purpose of life is to recognize that you're a soul and to claim that soul and to become some, and to use experience to illuminate your soul and to align yourself with the possibilities, the altruistic possibilities of that soul. So if you say uh, floating around in the archetypal realm of Jung's model is the savior mm -hmm. as one archetype, and, then the and idea... We could also say an image. It's an image. You know, and that, that I think gets us into this linguistic territory. And that's kind of what I'm hearing is there is this image in, again, this is like one of the things that Amon has said to me before, the image, there's a physics that the image is related to and entangled with. You know, the Savior will manifest in different cultures. It's transcendent of a transpersonal, transdimensional and the image manifests at meaningful moments and is empowered in meaningful ways. And this goes back to what uh, was happening in the Greek territory when they would say things like, we think we have ideas, but ideas have us. And that, I think, is what this is. Th these, these structures can sometimes have their ways with us, have their, have their way with us. And we have to figure out how we surrender or how we inhabit with it. Right, so the okay, you're, you're on altruism. Sorry that. Well, there's this relationship between the quantum openness and then aligning. The most constructive use of a precious human life, they say, is to discover one's openness, and then to align with purpose, this altruistic purpose. This is this is this is the end game. This is the end game of Buddhism, is to is to discover what you're not, but then in through that discover what you truly are. You are that <laughs> openness, incarnate. There's no other place than here. There's no nether world. There's no, I mean, there are many a worlds, but you're always going to be inhabiting some character. Mm -hmm. So what's the best character? Mm -hmm. Well, he's sitting right in front of me. He's sitting right in front of me. But he's driven by the nectar of bodhicitta. He's driven. He can have two kids, be a therapist, love rock and roll, and he will be perfectly in line with his soul's purpose if at the very root of it, he's motivated by love and compassion. Mm -hmm. And I think there's no difference here between what apotheosis and Christ were trying to do. You are Christ. Taste the nectar of immortality and perform the dance of being the Savior so that others might also taste the same nectar. That's just, that's just, that's Buddhism. Except it wasn't, it was never repressed, so that some, you know, there's only one Dalai Lama, and you have to bow to the Dalai Lama and ask for forgiveness, and if he puts his wand on top of your crown, then you'll be free. No. The idea is, you're the Buddha. And you, you have Buddha nature within inside of you. And if you can get past all the layers of certainty that you're not, you can taste that soul level, and then you can manifest it as a kind of archetypal personality that actually has tremendous galvanizing power 
for the rest of collective consciousness to do the same kind of formula, the same kind of awakening dance. And you can do that in business. You can do that as a teacher in an educational setting. You can do that as a police officer. You can do that as an artist. It doesn't matter. In fact, more the better. So that all society is refracting the same kind of principle. You are a soul and love beings. You are a soul, love beings. You're, you're articulating a split that's pretty common. And we see it. We don't have to go far from the root of our conversation, which is psychedelics. One of the roots because here, you know, you pick your duality, Jung and Freud. We have one in the psychedelic world, which is Huxley and Leary. And so this is back to this question about esoterics. That oh, give, Huxley, me a, give, give me the benefit that I might not know that Huxley-Leary uh, totally. split. Give, give me a nutshell. Nutshell is that Huxley says, uh, well, let me start with Leary. Leary's like, let's take LSD and put it in the water supply. I mean, this is about like freeing people from the fucking matrix and he's a radical and he's like fucking dose yes healing exploration no just make it happen he's like uh such a radical energy you know and wants to just throw the power systems out and really disrupt society and social norms because he wants everybody to trip on lsd huxley was saying wait a second this is for um a kind of uh, those who have been initiated this is for folks who have have honor who recognize the, the, the paths that are present and that you can't just medicate somebody with high doses of LSD. Maybe you can, but, but then, and expect that they will naturally just know how to orient themselves. So, so here's a question that... Yes. Um, I mean, that's a kind of a conservative, progressive binary. To- totally, totally. We see it everywhere you know and i wish we could like recognize well, you, find, you find the middle you've got to go for the middle you've got to go for the middle i mean this is the problem with our polarization in our current american political landscape is that the left doesn't understand the right and the right doesn't understand the left but each of them are holding on to a pretty good value there's a yes. there's some there's some powerful value in conservatism. There is really something to say about Absolutely. preserving the sanity and the legacy of the past and there's something about autonomy and preserving speech and the right to this and the right to that. Um, because in their particular context, that was all really fucking vital. On the other hand, if you uh, you know if, if institutions don't progress, if institutions don't change and if institutions don't evolve, then they become prisons. And so, you know, of course we have to adjust with the time. Of course we have to move forward. Of course it's time for every human being on the planet to have the same basic human rights and dignity. Of course, of course, of course. Now you do that too quickly and you get some pretty crazy ideas. (laughs) Pretty unhinged and dangerous ideas, I might add, though I won't probably say exactly which ones. But yeah, yeah, so there's a shadow to both. But there's mm-hmm. also an inherent utilitarian virtue in each. And what could we do is bring a conversation to the middle where there can be a nuanced conversation about how to integrate both sides? Because I think, yeah, I mean, I think I don't know about you. I would say my personal disposition is center conservative. Like, I don't think everybody should just be a massively dosed up. Right. On the other hand, I know what Leary is saying because yeah, the fucking world is crazy. Let's get let's get out of the matrix, of course. So, you know, it's it's like 
that's a wonderful rubric at a conceptual level, but it would take a really intense series of conversations to get more specific and nuanced and detailed in particular about what a hybrid or an integration might actually look like. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, that, and what a friend of mine recently challenged me with, because you, earlier you said, you know, you are the Christ, you are the Buddha, you have this potential you know, down in your the recesses in this pool of, you know, muck. And uh, uh, it is the underworld. It's the uh, where, I mean, when I watch these, early, you know, these awesome, like, disco, uh, One Strange Rock is just a freaking brilliant show that Aron, um, Aronofsky did. And it was, and, you know, you see the beginning of the earth and it's this lava and, and mush and algae and shit. Well, that... So that's in us, right? This place of potential. And what can happen is that when we, we all have this potential, and I think, let me get to the statement, and then we'll unpack it. The potential to realize the Godhead within is inherent, ontologically speaking, in each person. But epistemologically, when it gets to, when it epistemologically, it can't be true because not everybody can incarnate the Godhead. Does that make any sense? Not everybody at any one moment or any given moment can. Yes, I would agree with that because that's because of the forces of karma. So you have Buddha nature, you have unlimited potential to be a completely uh, awake human being, understanding the full totality of the nature of reality, your interdependence with all things. And, but because of the forces of causes and conditions, you can't just access that and, and manifest that at any moment. You have all kinds of obscurations, patterns, samskaras, tendencies, predispositions that will obscure it, that will prevent it, that will augment it, that will give you slight little windows to it. And even if you take a massive psilocybin expedition and you touch the nature of ultimate reality, you will still have to come back to the matrix of your conventional reality. And until that is transformed, then you can fully, and that's what they would say the archetype of Christ or the Buddha actually represents as someone that has brought the totality into the, yes. into the manifestation or the avatar, into the, into the field of relativity. Yeah, because, I mean, sometimes I just want to paint the fucking fence. You know, like, I don't, you know, like embodying the Godhead, you know, and being all these deeper. It's like sometimes I just want to chop but wood, what's, carry what's water. what's to say that embodying the Godhead isn't painting the fence? <laughs> I totally, that's what I thought. When I, yes, I get that. I mean, that. this is where they say those Zen koans that you know of. I mean, when drinking yeah. tea, just drink tea, and that is enlightenment. That is enlightenment. And, and and that's because it's trying to destroy your conceptual understanding that it would be anything other than drinking tea or painting the fence. <laughs> okay, so I'm looking at our time, and I want to be mindful. I still have a— We're going to have to have another one. I'm going to have I'm to down. come to I'm Houston. <laughs> yes, I'm totally down. So, uh, so tell me about—I'm uh, still thinking about the Oracle and this Eastern— uh, West, Yeah, Western that's my favorite kind of part. Connection. My favorite so, part. So tell me why the Dalai Lama meets with an oracle. What is it in what what is the nature of reality 
that sets up an oracle as somebody that one would turn to. Yeah, I mean, can you imagine how fabulous it is to on your political cabinet have an oracle? <laughs> I mean, in in modern With a funny times, hat. you know, in funny modern hat. times, in modern times, yes, with a funny hat. Yeah, uh, the Nechong Oracle off, uh, occupies a political position in the cabinet of the Tibetan government. Yes, in exile. Yes, it's true. <laughs> yes, it's true. Anybody that you know, because they have a vast notion of reality that isn't internally is completely internally consistent they understand that they need roads and plumbing for their people and that for those kinds of things health and vaccinations and all the rest of it and for that science is perfectly reasonable up and up into a point and then they also see that reality is much vaster and for that other terrain there needs to be psychonauts that can speak that language and can draw in a collective kind of gnosis or understanding uh, that is only tapped with that kind of professional, with that kind of, I mean, you when you have a car accident, you go see a lawyer. You don't try to handle your business. If you get sued as a, if you, in, your, in your business, if you get sued mm-hmm. by a client, you're not gonna try and handle that yourself. You're not gonna try and handle that yourself. You need a specialist. Uh, so the, <laughs> well, when you when you go to a seer or an oracle, so let's let's go at this because there are two ways, right? I, I'm I've been looking at this image of an oracle, and part of the process is that you take a viper venom, you crawl through a deep, dark cave, scorpions and snakes, and any of us can understand that we would be met with some pretty horrendous experiences you know just that would that are patterned you know they won't be the same thing but if i take a viper venom and i crawl through a cave i'm going to meet some demons you know now what that means is up for debate right like is it just a you know it's it's uh vampires that i see in my closet when i was a five-year-old you know Mm. or or is it something else um so what this process involves is you go through, take the thing, go through, encounter the whatever you do, come out, take the antidote, report to the oracle, and then there's a kind of treatment plan. You know, there's like, a, hey, this is what you do. And so that's a certain psychotherapy. That's, that, that's what psychotherapy could do. That, yes, that is like, psychotherapy, yeah. And, and, and that's, that, that's why I think Campbell and Jung are really powerful for that, for what you're describing, to really understand and appreciate that level of ritual or that level of initiation or that level of sacred practice, Jung and Campbell, the combination would really help us make sense of what's going on because there is a descent into the underworld and there's the confrontation with the archetype, but in confronting the dragon or the demon, there is, it's, it's energy. It's energy that has been bound up or calcified and it can be released. And that takes a very deep kind of knowing. And this idea that, Every dragon protects a treasure. Mm-hmm. And the dragon represents that which we don't want to deal with. That which we don't, that's what, that which we're afraid of. It could be trauma. If you run from your traumas, they get bigger. Yes. And more insidious and more powerful and more terrific. And the more terrific they are, the further you run away from them. Until somebody gives you an option or until you're willing to crawl back down into the recess of your mind through that thorny tunnel 
and have a confrontation or a sit down with that dragon, you don't, you think it's an other, but it's you. And through recognizing it's you, the fear is diminished. And whatever it has to teach you, whatever, you're reincorporating it. And this is one thing I love about the depiction of Christ in the three days after the crucifixion. He also makes a descent into the underworld. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And there he connects with all the old souls, including his parents, I believe, or could be Adam and Eve, all the old souls. And what he's doing in those three days in the underworld is he's recollecting all that he is. Because these are all fragments and shards and, and, and fractures of the self that now appear as different entities in which we have these conflictual feelings about. We see them as other. But Jung's notion of the self is the integration of the totality of the self, and the Christ descends. Before he arises, he first descends and reclaims them. Help me understand this, then, because there's one one little hitch in that, and which is Jung, and I think as evidenced by a lot of certainly the psychotherapeutic work that we probably both do, there is an autonomy to some of these figures you know they i I like the image of a pin light you know so i go into the dark cave and i've got a pin light and when i put the pin light this way i can see that but i don't see that the totality of existence is in me which is to say the totality the totalities of potential and possibilities exists in me and in some way has have various forms that I can relate with in moments of ecstatic experience, sexual experience, trauma, psychedelic experience, fantasy, daydreams, projections, who I hate, who I love, who I'm drawn to, who I'm despised by. And they are a kind of other in that if my kind of interior representation is that my me, that is me, is the ego, and there are others that are in me that are beyond my ego, but they're in me. You know, they're in mm-hmm. my... Yeah. So mm-hmm. what do you... with well, yeah, Again, yeah. it requires us to not obliterate the duality between form and emptiness or ultimate and conventional. Ultimately, there is no difference. Mm-hmm. They're all the self. Conventionally, they manifest as other. Mm-hmm. If you don't see that... As one thing, you're going to get lost and confused thinking that they're totally other or totally just me. Right. <laughs> the extremes. The middle way is, is it requires a lot of tolerance for cognitive dissonance. They're both and neither. We're back to the Zen koan. But yeah, yeah the, the enemies that are within are parts of us that haven't been fully integrated the father figure that abused you is both an external entity, we have to say yes, and is an internalized representation of the self that you can't inter- you can't accept. And look, if we don't be very clear about social justice, for example, highly traumatized people who then come into power can be abusive themselves, for example. 
because they haven't totally integrated the 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 uh, the parts of themselves uh, that they despise and that what we despise we project outwards. Yes. So this is why you can have abused become abuser. We mm-hmm. see it all the time. Mm-hmm. Kids that are abused, how do they become abusers? Because they haven't fully come to accepting all the parts of their trauma as parts of themselves. They externalize that and they replicate with a lot of vengeance and a lot of heat and a lot of animosity. They create division. So it's both and. Uh, when Christ was down there, these other external agencies, at one time they're different souls, and at another, in, an, in the very same moment, they are part of him. This is what they say. I don't, I've never experienced it, but this is what they report the experience of the Buddha is, is that a complete synergy between ultimate and, and, and relative. At the very same time as I experience you as part of me, I also experience you as separate. At the very same time, what could that be like? That means that I would have the subjectivity of experiencing reality from your set of vantage points. I would have a deep empathy and deep sensitivity. But I wouldn't lose myself in you. I would preserve the distinction and yet have a complete subjective sense that you are me and my our interests are mutually, uh, are mutually um, uh, indistinguishable. I basically live in the world protecting your values and protecting your sanity and protecting your autonomy because I see you as me. But I don't. I also know that you're different. I mean, it's 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 radical. It's radical. But to come back to this idea of going into the cave and and taking the venom that you're talking about. I mean, the potency of those images and crawling through the birth canal and mm-hmm. then arriving at this place where you see the demons. Yes, I mean, I think if you ask anybody who's been through an enormous trial, whether it be successful trauma therapy or they've done a psychedelics experience for the first time and survived, or they've done a dark retreat or a 10-day Vipassana retreat, most likely, not everybody, most likely at the other end of it, they have found the victory of confidence or the victory of insight. And they don't look back and look at the problem that they confronted the same anymore. Mm-hmm. Whatever, whatever you were afraid of before you took psychedelics, likely you're not afraid of the second time. Whatever, whatever happened to you in the dark retreat, you, the fear that was bound up in your projection about what it would mean to be 10 days in darkness are, is reabsorbed as your own confidence. It's the same energy. It's just like fear and love are just energy, but they have been recruited in the service of different activities. Uh, love and anger, for example at its most basic state is just energy, but it, it gets bound up and calcified as different kinds of experiences. Mm-hmm. So fear, when faced, is unlocked and unleashed and can be then serviced as love or insight. So maybe that's what happens when you climb out of the cave and you go visit the oracle or the at the Asclepion, they would have priests after the incubation that would give you a kind of practice or they would give you an interpretation this may be the actually the foundations of dream analysis the asclepion mm-hmm. in greece mm-hmm. maybe you can't make sense of everything that you see in your dream or maybe you couldn't make sense of everything in your underworld experience or maybe you couldn't make sense of everything in your psychedelics experience so you need a, prof- a trained professional to help you really taste the nectar of of your heroic journey 
And we need to speak it and honor it in a way that takes it seriously. Okay, so I get, and we've got to go in a few minutes because I got a patient, but I'm, so, so I get this part, right? I'm in the cave, I encounter the demons, I go to the oracle, I got all these kind of fragmented parts of myself that Jung called splinter personalities that take on some kind of autonomy, and they haunt me and interact and uh, abscond with my best of attentions and make me act uh, all kinds of ways that I look back on and go, what the fuck was that? And what we, <laughs> what we were talking about a second ago is a fucking oracle who says, hey, leave this place because the warriors are coming. Yeah. That's different than that. That's where it gets into weird shit about entanglement and how are you reading the tea leaves and seeing an yeah, but that's why that's why that's why I say like that's the difference between a therapist and a, a news reporter or a weather reporter. Okay, the person that helps you outside of the womb to integrate is the therapist or the shaman. Mm -hmm. But if you want to know the weather, you go see a meteorologist. Well, the Dalai Lama wanted to know when were the best opportune window to escape was. So he went to see somebody who could see that. He could see into the future. He could he could identify yeah. the opportune time. That's where it gets awesome. It's so awesome. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that I mean that's where it gets really cool. And that's that's the kind of material that I think people are confronting when they engage in these kind of psychedelic experiences in a healthy way with the container and um, is they recognize that reality has more possibilities than you once thought. And that revelation, you know, to hint, to even suggest from within that as a potential of reality can be utterly disorienting to one's understanding of who one is and what the world is. Couldn't agree more. I mean, that's why I think preparation is really important because you don't know what you're going to see at the top of the mountain. You don't know what's going to happen. You don't know. And you might not be able to make it back down after seeing it. Uh, so preparation beforehand, preparation while you're there, preparation on the way down, that's at least the most gentle, gradual. That's why I wrote The Gradual Path because... Yeah. But I, I, I don't condemn people who want to just, a 20-year-old that's never had any experience that wants to go down and just bl bl obliterate their mind. But I'll be there for them. I'll be there for them, you know. Uh, and they'll need you. Right? They, they need what you do. They, they uh, I, it was Young or Campbell or Jim Hollis the, the, that said, you know, when we don't have the the landmarks we have to go at it alone and back to our initial conversation is the, the that's an isolationist experience and we've we've been doing this project called humanity for a long time and that's no good cuz what we also do is the worst mm. punishment other than death that we can give you is to isolate you. isolate mm cut you off from that feedback that we were talking about. Mm. Well, I, Miles, uh, thank you. Like this is, yeah. this is one of those enriching um, experiences. I yeah. really appreciate your time and what you're doing to elucidate all these ideas. 
I think it was a really rich conversation that I'd love to enjoy continuing to converse with you and collaborating with you is a really, for me, it was a wonderful opportunity just to get to know you and to sort of feel through your, the way you think and to see how rich all the diverse, uh, you know, disciplines that you're integrating there for, for some, for me, for some of them are really brand new. So it's been really enriching for me. Thank you so much. And I, I, I will take you up on it. I will I'll be knocking on your door again. Cause it's, it's a, it's a long conversation. It's what Phil Cousineau called the, uh, the long discussion. So it's meaningful, rich and enduring discussion because these are very complicated themes. And what, what else do you want to do with your life? <laughs> oh man, I know. And I'm such a student, you know, I just, I'm like an enthusiastic, excited, eager student. You know, I just love these questions. So thank you for the opportunity to, to connect and get to know you. It's a pleasure. Love